Well, good morning. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for these wonderful, marvelous stories that we have before us. And we ask as we reflect on the work that you did in their lives that you would do the same work in ours. Fill us with confidence in who you are and in what you do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm feeling slightly loud, Adam. A little bit of an echo that I can hear. Whether anyone else can or not, I don't know. I wonder when I start this morning with a question, are you the sort of person who is naturally inclined to being superstitious or to being sceptical? When it comes to the, the supernatural, when it comes to encountering things beyond the usual, things that perhaps don't quite seem to fit the normal pattern of life and the world, are you the sort of person who is the superstitious kind, right? You, you're looking for these things. You're looking for the hand of God at work in the world. You're, you're looking for the events that are unusual, miraculous maybe even. Examples of power coming into creation. But perhaps the timing of things just seems a little bit too good to be coincidence. It's the hand of God. The smallest thing. Perhaps you even go chasing after it. You're so looking for these wonderful events that you can't help but seek them out. Is that your natural inclination? Or are you perhaps a little bit like me? Oh, this, this, oh, look, I'll put my hand up to this and you're a bit more of the sceptical sort and an elephant could appear out of thin air in front of you and you'd be looking for the, the natural explanation for, well, an aeroplane must have just flown by and the elephant fell out and that's why an elephant just appeared, right? Whatever it may be. Both, I think, of these extremes, the, the extreme superstition and the extreme scepticism, are born out of a similar view of God. That God operates in kind of the unusual ways. That the miraculous, the supernatural, the special, the unusual is God at work and then everything else that happens day to day is just mundane. It's just the world doing its thing. It's not really God. Now, as we come to our great conversion today, we, we're going to jump straight into it. We're going to see, I think, the supernatural at work. And we're going to see the supernatural, we're going, to, we're going to see God's hand at work in a way that is more mundane than we ever expect it to be and in a way that is more unusual and spectacular. Now, I'm going to cheat a little bit. We've been doing great conversions and today we're meant to do one great conversion, the Philippian jailer. Um, I'm just going to slip in two more. So you're going to get three for the price of one this morning as we look at three great conversions, not one. And as we go, we're going to do the same thing. I'm going to retell you the stories and then I've got seven lessons for us today. All right, here we go. Story number one is the story of Lydia. Now, Paul and his little group had travelled into Philippi, really at the, the, by, by the guidance of God, they had arrived there. And uh, it seems that Luke, the author of the book of Acts, had joined them at some point in time. The, the language goes from they to we. There you go, there's an interesting little thing to note on the way through. And as they arrive in Philippi, they did what they normally did. Have a look with me at Acts 16 and verse 13. On the Sabbath day... We went outside to the city gate by the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. Now, I don't know if that's what you do on holidays. You, you, you go visit another church when you're on holidays? I hope you do. Um, you, you often end up in some really wacky places and you often end up in some really wonderful places where you get to meet some of God's people and, and share with them. 
Now, Paul, he's not so much on holidays as he is on mission, but he does what he's used to doing. Come the Sabbath, let's go and meet with God's people. Seems there wasn't a synagogue. That was their normal practice, was to go and find a synagogue. You needed 10 Jewish men to start a synagogue. Seemingly in Philippi, there weren't even that many. So they go, they wander down, there's no church in town, where are we going to go? Oh, there's that little glade just outside town, I reckon that's where Christians would gather or God's people would gather if they were around. So they head on out, they sat down and there's a group of women. Verse 14, a God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to what Paul was saying. She and her household were baptised and she said, come use my house as your base of operations. Now that's just an absolutely perfectly normal series of events, isn't it? A Christian joins a group of non-Christians, tells them about Jesus, one of them believes, brings her whole household to faith and her life is changed as a result. I mean, if you haven't seen that happen before, just stick around church a little while longer because that happens all the time all the time. I think at last count, in the last 13 years, well, actually more now, 14 years, uh, that Joe has been here, he's counted 81 people who in some way or other have given their life to the Lord Jesus and some of them were with us and we've seen the transformation in them. Many of them have gone and by God's mercy and grace they continue strong in the faith. This is just perfectly normal. Or is it? Do you see God's hand at work? Do you see the supernatural activity that's required for this seemingly mundane activity to happen? It's, it's, it's wonderful in this chapter because we get it explained to us. We get the insight into the invisible. Did you notice that in verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was... It's such an innocuous verse, isn't it? How much attention would we pay it if you're reading that in your own quiet time? And you just, yeah, that's lovely, right? Good on you, God. What a nice thing to do. And we keep going to the more interesting bits about the demons and the spirits and all the earthquakes. And that verse is mind boggling. The God of the universe who sustains it moment by moment cared enough about this one merchant from Philippi, a city where there's not even a church, there's not, there's not a big presence of God's people, it's not like there's the, the big worship and the big temple and the big cult. No, God, there's one little nobody, dare I say it, that God himself cared about so much to reach into her life and by his Holy Spirit take her from death into life to open her heart, open her eyes, open her mind, that she would receive it, that she would believe and trust. We must never take for granted the miracle of new birth. It only happens through God. It only happens by God's hand. Let's be very clear about that. And when it does happen, it is entirely unnatural for a sinner to trust God. Well, as the first story, the second story, if anything, 
is even stranger. That first one was kind of normal, isn't it? This is a usual thing that we experience. Story number two gets a bit weird. They stayed there for a while, right? It's been a number of days, weeks. Once when we were on our way to prayer, in verse 16, a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. Now, if you don't have questions about that verse, then you haven't read it yet, right? What is this talking about? I mean, what? Did she really predict the future? That's amazing. No wonder her owners were making an absolute mozza out of her. I mean, this is just astonishing. How can a spirit do that? You know what? We don't know. We're not told. We do know that she was effective enough to make a large profit for her owners by fortune telling. But notice what happened. She gets fixated on Paul and those with her. She followed Paul and us. She cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the servants of the Most High God. She did this for many days. Man, that would be annoying. I mean, you, you ever been on the long drive and you've got the kids in the back? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? It's just like, ah, shut up already, right? Paul's traveling through the city and this girl just, these men, the servants of the Most High God. And you're like, dude, just give it a break. I'm trying to talk to some other people here. Stop bugging me for days. Isn't that weird? Like the whole thing is just bizarre. Just imagine walking around doing your normal daily thing. You're going to the shops and every time this hobo is following you around, just shouting, this one knows the living God. You're like, oh. Actually, it'd be kind of cool, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, let's be honest here. If someone was walking around after me declaring these words... These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are servants of them. That would be an amazing testimony, wouldn't it? I mean, what a witness. I, I can't help but wonder about the things that we aren't told in this story. What did her owners think? Presumably, she had a pretty good hit rate. right? She, she usually spoke the truth. What do the people around think? who have come and made use of her services and have been spoken the future to by this girl, to suddenly hear her declare, the way of salvation is here. Servants of the Most High God walk among us. Paul gets a bit annoyed. <clears throat> Like, dude, just shut up already. And so verse 18, he was greatly annoyed. He turned to the Spirit and he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out right away. Now, I hesitate to label this a great conversion because we don't know what happened to that girl. Did she meet Jesus? Did she put her faith in the Lord and was saved? You'd hope so. She certainly knew the truth but we don't know. It's such a strange story in what we are not told. What happens to her? What happens to the crowd? What happens to her owners? But it sets the scene for what happens next. That's our second story. 
The third one begins at that moment, verse 19, when her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone. Right, there was something real happening with this girl. Once the spirit is gone, she can no longer do it. They seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities, bringing them before the chief magistrate. They said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews. I mean, no, not, not savvy enough to have the distinction between followers of Jesus and Jewish custom, but they are Jews and they are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. Now, again, we're not told explicitly that the Romans had um, prescribed gods. They had the official gods of the Roman Empire and you you weren't allowed to have other gods, essentially. So it's quite likely that the servant woman declaring, here are servants of the Most High God, was a problem for Paul and his followers because the Most High God wasn't a recognised God. And so the Roman outpost, that is Philippi, deals with it. Verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against them. The chief magistrate stripped them of their clothes, ordered them beaten with rods. After they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them in the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. Man! This slave is following you. You tell them to shut up and go away. And as a result... You get mobbed. Scary thing, right? I take it it's that sort of moment. You don't know if you're going to live or die. You're getting punched, beaten, pummeled. Rods are hitting you. I've never been at the receiving end of a solid beating. I, I, I hesitate to ask if anyone has. Tell us about your past. Who's, uh, who who in, their, in their old days went down to the bar looking for fights and came home worse or better? Or I've, I've never been at the receiving end. I can only imagine... The agony, the vulnerability, the fear. Locked up and locked up properly in the inner prison and secured in stocks. You know those big wooden things that kind of clamp down around your feet? You're going nowhere. You're not getting comfy either, by the way. Imagine for a moment that's you. All right, the whole sequence of events. You, you were down at Woolies... <laughs> The hobo's shouting around behind you. You turn around, you tell him to shut up. Turns out he's a drug dealer, right? The drug dealer's owners, they come and they start beating you up. The crowd gathers, bang, you're just getting destroyed. They take you before the police. Somehow they manage to convince the police that you are the one who's at fault. They lock you up with the worst of the worst. What are you going to do next? I want a lawyer. <laughs> I demand my rights. Maybe praying fervently to yourself. Try and get some sleep if you can. Look what they did, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. <laughs> what sort of men are these? It's not the quiet prayer, right? The prisoners are listening. The whole jail can hear them. It's like Joe when he sings, right? There's no quietness about it. There's no subtlety. There's no, I'm just quietly humming to myself. Everybody knows that you're singing. And even if they ask you to stop, you're not going to, right? Like the parallels are so close. Loud, proud, 
These are bad circumstances. They're in a foreign city. They're locked up. They're uncertain about their future. They're wounded. They're humility. And yet, here they are, praising their God. Now, what happens? Verse 26, Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. Now, that's got to be the most surgically precise earthquake I have ever heard of. To shake the foundations of the building and the only thing that happens is the doors open and your chains fall off is astonishing. There have been some pretty shocking earthquakes of late. You can see footage of it, right? The age we live in, someone's filmed everything and it's entire buildings crumbling to dust. It's people's rooms that they're in being destroyed as it's shaken. These guys... God says, (laughs) you're free. Now here we meet finally the Philippian jailer. We meet the man of our great conversion today. This man who had put them in the inner prison. This man who had secured them in the stocks. This man who had been ordered to guard them carefully wakes up. I wonder if he wasn't meant to be asleep. I don't know. But when he wakes up and he sees the doors of the prison standing open, he assumes everyone's run away. Fair enough assumption, right? You're guarding notorious prisoners and you look and your jail's wide open. Decides to throw himself on his own sword. Now, it could well be that being asleep on the job deserved death. And so he had it coming either way, right? He's asleep, he woke up, prisoners are gone, it's his fault, he's going to die. And what happens next is astonishing. Paul calls out in loud voice, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer calls for lights, rushed in, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Think of there's other people here, there's other guards. He escorted them out and he asked them a truly incredible question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I wonder what prompted that question. Why is that what he asked them? Instead of just locking them back up again, whoo, dodged a bullet there. No, come, come out, come into my house and tell me what must I do? I wonder if again he didn't have that slave girl's words on his mind. She'd been yelling them for days. The way of salvation is here. These men are followers of the Most High God. I wonder what it was that prompted that question. Was it the display of the miraculous before him? The earthquake, the the, the surgical precision of everything opening? Or was it perhaps the character of Paul and Silas to not only not run away, but to care for the jailer? The guy who's locking you up is about to kill himself. Brilliant! If you want to run away, that's exactly what you want, right? He offs himself we can go they reach out and say don't hurt yourself it's okay we're still here we love you we want good for you don't hurt yourself whatever it was prompts this man sirs what must I do to be saved and they gave him the best news that he has ever heard believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved you and your household He's, he's not a Roman God he's not an official one but he's the real one, he's the true one. He's the one whose power cast out the spirit of that slave girl. He's the one whose power changed the heart of Lydia. 
He's the same one who can save you. Verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. I mean, can you imagine just like, what, 1 a.m. by now, 2 a.m.? I take it they all woke up in the earthquake as well. Everyone's running around going, what on earth is happening? The jailer brings in the prisoners and says they want to teach us something. They tell him about Jesus. They say, hour of the night, he washed their wounds, they were all baptised. They came into the house, had a meal, 3 a.m. now, and we're sitting down to eat and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. Now, as the the next morning dawns and, you know, stuff happens, the magistrates try to send them on their way, Paul and Silas put them in their place, actually, we're Roman citizens, they get a bit worried about that, they come and apologise, off they go. And I love the last verse, verse 40, after leaving the jail, they came to Lydia's house, where they saw and encouraged the brothers and sisters and departed. These are the guys who'd just been in jail overnight, beaten up, right, had their wounds. They come and encourage the others and then move on. All right, three stories of wonderful works of God. What are we going to learn from it? I've got seven lessons for us. Here we go. Lesson number one. Do you know what this one is by now? We've had it every single week. What's lesson number one? God can save anyone, absolutely anyone. I mean, what have we got in this story? We've got Lydia, the, the, the wealthy entrepreneurial businesswoman who has a sense of God but hasn't met him yet. God can save her. The jailer, I mean, we talk about the least likely person to be, <laughs> that you might see come to Christ, your prison guard. He comes to Christ. No, Christianity is not, and I hope you've seen it by now, it, it's not uh, limited. It's not only for certain people, right? There, there are those who think that Christianity is a white man's religion, which is a bit weird, given that it was born in the Middle East. But anyway, let's just, right? It's not, for, it's not that it's middle class. It's only for people of a certain socioeconomic. It's not true. God can save anyone. But notice then our second lesson, God doesn't save everybody that's also true we need to remember that there are so many other people in this story now they may some of them may have come to christ we're just not told but it's likely that many of them didn't the the owners the slave girl the other women gathered around lydia outside the other prisoners who heard the singing and the praying the magistrates the mob the other guards in the jail so many other people around them now i want to tell you this lesson because what it reminds us of is how much we need to trust god he is the one who opened lydia's heart He is the one who in that moment gave the Philippian jailer enough opening of eyes to ask what must I do to be saved. It is God's choice and God's work and we must trust his choices. If you ever find yourself doubting them, just remember the cross. Remember the love that he has shown us, the goodness of God towards us. We trust him because we know that he is good. God can save anyone. God doesn't save everybody. Lesson number three, God saves through belief in Jesus. 
Nothing else. He doesn't save people through supernatural events. Although he can use them, right? This earthquake, the casting out of the Spirit, he can use them. But they generally are a means towards getting people to the gospel. He doesn't save people through circumstances. Although circumstances often set the scene, the things that are happening around you might well prompt you to come and find Jesus, right? The, the earthquake began this series of events, but the earthquake didn't save the jailer. What must I do to be saved, he says? Believe in Jesus. God doesn't save through the supernatural. He doesn't save through circumstances. He doesn't even save through the behavior of Christians. Now, there's a thought worth pondering. I mean, Paul and Silas, they're praying and singing out loud. They're not running away. None of those things save the jailer. In the end, it was the gospel. Of course, our behavior can prompt the conversation. I'm not telling you to stop living Christianly. Living as light and salt in the world will prompt the opportunities to speak, but speak we must. God saves through belief in Jesus. So lesson number four, witness with your life and your words. Witness with your life and your words. What a miracle of godly character these men showed. In prison, singing, praying, standing before the jailer, showing him love. Standing up to preach the very gospel that you've just been beaten up for. Living with integrity, even in the face of hardship. Right? That, that, that aim that says, I am going to live to honour God. My next decision, my next action, the next thing that happens in my life, I will do it to honour God that I might then speak the gospel to those around me. Witness with your life and with your words. Lesson number five. The supernatural is real. It's a simple lesson, isn't it? Now, of course it's real, right? I mean, we Christians, we believe in the supernatural. We believe in a God who is outside of creation. We believe in a God who is beyond nature, he created it, therefore we believe in the supernatural. If you're a Christian person, you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Of course we believe in the supernatural. But it's so easy, and I'm preaching to myself here more than anybody else, it's so easy to allow the materialistic view of our age to seep in. All there is is matter, this supernatural stuff, eh. And so I find it really easy to believe the big things of the Bible, of the past, God raised Jesus from the dead, God poured out the Holy Spirit, and it's much harder to imagine that that still breaks into the world today. But of course it's real. We've already seen the most common way that the supernatural occurs, which is when God takes a dead heart and gives it life. That's a supernatural work. Every time someone comes to Christ, God has done a miracle. And there is so much more than that. Now, it's easy, of course, to become superstitious and to go searching for the supernatural events. It's easy to be a cynic and sceptic and write it all off. We have to do is listen to God's Word 
and let it teach us what we need to know. So here's the lesson number six that I want to tell you for today. There's so much more we could say about the supernatural, but I'll tell you this one lesson today. Not everything supernatural is good. There's lots of people who make that mistake to think that if in any way, shape or form it's vaguely special, vaguely supernatural, vaguely spiritual or otherworldly, it must be good. It's clearly not the case. We have the girl here with this spirit that's possessed her. I mean, it, it prompts a sort of fascination for Christians, doesn't it? The angels and demons and miracles and... Don't follow the path of our world. The, the New Age movement today is just bought it hook, line and sinker. Don't chase after it. That's not what matters. Did you notice Paul's interaction with that slave girl? He saw a girl that had an evil spirit in her. And what did he do? He ignored her. Right? Like for days. He's like, I'm busy preaching the gospel. I'm busy teaching this group of women about Jesus. I'm busy establishing God's church through the declaration of the death of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. There's something incredible over here, something supernatural, miraculous, demonic. Like, and he's just like, don't bother me with that. I'm busy doing the work of the kingdom. Eventually, it bugged him so much that he went and did something about it. But it wasn't his priority. It's not the thing that he's focused on. He's not looking for the supernatural. We have to be very careful to listen to what the Bible says and what it doesn't say. Not everything supernatural is good. But, and here's lesson number seven. Here's uh, just a wonderful lesson I want us to take to heart today. Come with me down to verse 34 again. <clears throat> Let's learn from this great conversion of the Philippian jailer. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. Here's lesson number seven. Conversion produces great joy. To know the Lord Jesus Christ, to have salvation, the forgiveness of sins, life eternal, to have the hope of heaven, to have a living relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, to have the Spirit poured out into your life, empowering godly walking, produces great joy. I wonder if uh, we, we have that joy in our lives, if you have that joy in yours. It feels a little bit like when you fall in love with someone. You know those early days? It's just, the heart palpitations, the sweaty hands, the, the flushes. It seems like for a few years, somebody follows you with a spotlight and every time that special person walks into the room, they turn the spotlight onto them and everything else just fades away. Do you remember those years? I don't know how long ago it was for you. Maybe, maybe you've never experienced it, I don't know. Sometimes it can be like that with God, right? particularly for those who've become Christians as adults, the, the, the love that's blessed, first love that blossoms as we receive, oh, such joy in the love that God shows us. 
Our thoughts are on Him. Our, our mind is set on Him. We walk into any room and all we can think about is God. One of the symptoms of these new Christians is how much they read. Have you ever seen it? New Christians, they just can't get enough. The Bible, books, you give them whatever. It's like, I, I, want, I want more of God. How can I find it? Singing, praying, delighting in the Lord Jesus, looking for opportunities to serve Him, to please Him. And then the years pass, don't they? And sometimes a relationship maybe gets a little bit musty, a little bit stale, a little bit old, a little bit in the same routine, the rut, the patterns. Now, if we would only give it time, the joy would still be there. That person still fills us with delight. The relationship still energizes us. But it's familiar now, right? Familiarity, what does that breed? Contempt. It's old. Doesn't give us a fizz anymore, so you know. I wonder if that's perhaps us. Oh, to capture what this man felt. Coming to believe, receiving salvation. The word we've used this year is hungry. That's the same word. Are you hungry? The hunger that we must have for God will bring this great joy. The great joy of knowing that we are his and he is ours. That we have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we too have received our own great conversion. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for these stories and what we can learn from them. We thank you for your work in our lives, in the lives of Lydia and this slave girl and the Philippian jailer. Father, today please fill us with joy. Fill us with joy at seeing your hand at work among us as you produce the supernatural among us. You transform us to be yours and to be like your son. Father, in each one of our lives, would you kindle or burst into flame that first love that we would continue to find our joy in the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that our salvation is sure and our relationship with you is powerful, deep and living. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.